Welcome to the latest episode of the Nudges for Social Good podcast from the Local Government Association. My name is Rian Gladman and I manage the Behavioural Change Programme here at the LGA. So the aim of this podcast series, as we said before, is to really demystify behavioural insights and behavioural change and provide real practical learning points and examples for you in councils to take away and try out on your own patch and in your own services. So today I'm joined by Hazel Wright from the Behavioural Insights team. Hi there Hazel, how are you? Hello, very well thank you, thanks for having me. So to give it a bit of context here, it's um, it's raining a lot where I am today, so you might hear some rain in the background, our listeners might, might get that. Is it raining, are you struggling with the weather where you are as well? Yep, <laughs> it's pretty dreary, it's pretty dreary, but hopefully it won't interfere too much. A conversation about behavioural change and behavioural insights is gonna is gonna cheer us all up, I'm sure. So, um, good stuff. Thanks for being with us today. Really appreciate your time. Um, so, to to kick us off, really, can you introduce yourself and your role at Behavioural Insights team, please? Yeah. So, I lead the local government team at Behavioural Insights, um, which is based across Manchester and London. Um, my own academic background is really in experimental psychology, and later as a postgrad in psychology and economics. Um, so when I first encountered BIT in 2014, I was actually working at the Cabinet Office in the Cities and Local Growth Unit, and it was a real revelation to me that there were um, opportunities to apply behavioural science to public policy. So I've always been really excited about the work that we do a bit. Um, but in terms of the team, most of what we do in the local government team um, is focused on vulnerable communities. So that's those who are homeless, um, those who are in receipt of social care, um, and those who work as carers or informal carers as well. So since a lot of the most important policy areas like public health and social care are delivered locally, um, my team does a lot of work with local authorities across the UK to embed the use of behavioural science at that level. So lots of experience there and I think it's, it's interesting you've got that central government perspective and now you're working more with local government and and applying your academic background to that as well so so great stuff um so what we as I said in the introduction there we're really looking to um to demystify behavior change behavior insights there's a lot of kind of academic jargony words around it as well and we really want to be very practical and pragmatic with this podcast so we've had other councils who've who've been on the podcast and have shared their example of their behavior insights intervention or nudge and, and what happened so but what i want to do today is for us to really strip it back even further and just to really put ourselves in the position of a, a very busy councillor or local government officer um, who really just doesn't quite know where to start with setting up such a behavioural insights project. So, so if we can really strip it back, um, you know, where should a councillor or officer begin when developing a behavioural insights intervention? So before we reach the stage where we start developing interventions and solutions, a really good place for a local authority to start, I think, is by looking at the challenge or the objective in more detail. And the question that it's useful to ask at this stage is, what is it that we actually want people to do? So that's normally where my team would kick off a project. So we have a methodology called TEST. The first part of this is TARGET. And that involves honing in on the target behaviour. So what is the specific behaviour we want to change and what is it we want people to do? 
So as an example, um, you might start with a problem that sounds pretty clear. So say you want to increase the number of people taking up bowel cancer screening. And maybe we can be really clear immediately about who in the local area we need to increase uptake for. So let's say it's gentlemen over 50. But the goal itself isn't detailed enough in terms of the behaviour, so what we need them to do. So increasing the number of people taking up bowel cancer screening, in this case, it's really useful to know, actually, that the screening process is done at home. And that involves the person collecting and sending back three separate stool samples. So now we're looking at a target behaviour that is actually to increase the number of males in their 50s who collect three stool samples and return them by post. So I'm not going to dwell on that one, but it's fair to say that when you get down to that level of specificity in terms of the behaviour, it potentially brings you to a very different set of solutions down the line. So it's always worth breaking down the aim into something specific. Um, as a local authority example, one of your goals, for example, might be to um, look at increasing the recruitment of foster carers. So to a number of different behaviours, um, it might be that you need people to attend information sessions, or it might be that you need potential foster carers to remember to be in for the home visit, um, or that you actually need them to, to complete the formal application. So I think start as a starting point for a local authority, I would think the key to developing an achievable target and starting with solutions is firstly thinking about the who. So whose behaviour is it we're trying to change? Um, what specifically do we need them to do? And ideally by when? And that is, I think, also a really useful conversation for councils to have with their operational teams and their delivery partners because not only will those teams have insights to what the key behaviours are, um, it's a really good way of bringing everybody onto the same page in terms of understanding what as a team it is you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I really like that. I like the, yeah, the who, what, when, that's a really nice, um, you know, take away isn't it and keeping our minds as you're you're setting out on this on this journey so and yeah I guess because the council will see their part potentially of the service and there may be other partners that are seeing different different parts so if you can all come together holistically and look at that that whole end-to-end -end service and ask yourself that you know the who what when questions together I, I think that's a really good place to start so so we, we understand the behavior at the top level we've we've drilled into it you know at, at different levels as you set out beautifully in those examples there we talked to our partners about that we've done the who what when part so how can local authorities start to gain insights into what drives the current behavior at the moment that we're looking to change yeah this is a this is the bit that we find really interesting um so so given that one of the guiding principles of behavioral science is is really to understand why people actually make decisions. This stage of the work is really about getting under the bonnet of the problem that you want to solve. And that's really important because councils and council workers might have um, an, an intuition for what, why they think people are doing what they're doing, but often our intuitions are wrong. So we might anticipate behavior based on what we, we think people should do, which is very different or can be very different to how they behave in practice. So this next stage is really about exploration. So it's about understanding the context in which the behavior happens. 
So we know, for example, that um, environmental factors have a really big impact on behaviour. So the context and the details really matter. So I would suggest putting a really strong focus on observing systems and processes and behaviour in practice and understanding behaviours in their given environment wherever possible. And there are lots of different methods that local authorities can use. And that depends on, you know, the timescales, um, the resources uh, and the behaviour they're targeting. But one very, very good one is to step into the shoes of the user. So that involves actually moving through that process yourself, if you can, or observing what happens in practice where you can. And that gives you a clearer view of the different steps that form a, a process or that lead to a behaviour. Um, it gives you a sense of how it feels and where things in the environment, like other people or physical situations, might impact that behaviour. So just as an example, members of um, my team have been done all sorts of things. So they've gone on um, collection rounds with bin men really early in the morning. They've signed... That was one of ours, wasn't it? Yeah, that was an LGA in Westminster, yeah. bins, a couple of <laughs> members of the team got that one. And that was that was really interesting, got us some really useful insights about um, all sorts of things, including like recycling and, and, and the behaviours around those. Um, they've signed up for benefits in the past. So they've been through the whole system from the front job centre kind of application all the way through. Um, they've shadowed health visitors on home visits and all of these things that are really embed yourself into that context and pick up things that you wouldn't notice otherwise. And then I think the second thing is, it's also really helpful to think about the data that you have available. So that can tell you a lot about what's happening and it might give you a bit of a kind of pointer towards a pattern. So with foster care um, applications, for example, with one local authority, we had a look at their data with them um, and we could see from what they collected that there was this quite substantial kind of 20% drop off in applications after a home visit, which is quite late in the process. So we knew that even after getting all the way through that process, potential foster carers, that there's still something happening around the home visit and between that and the application stage um, that is affecting their behaviour. So what we would do then is, and another thing councils could do is if you identify that point in the process where there's some um, friction or, or there's some drop off, you can then move to something like interviews, um, which are a really useful way of getting um, at some of the detailed questions as to why there's why there's a challenge there. So interviews are really social interactions. So if you can make an interview, you feel comfortable, you're likely to get really detailed, thoughtful answers um, that are really honest. They explain why people do what they do or why they make the choices they make. But yeah, I just want to pick up on, on that point around interviews and, and focus groups with those whose behaviour you would like to change. Um, obviously, now everything with COVID, we're doing it all online and, you know, we're not convening those groups of people anymore. Can you talk a bit about how, how if a council wanted to, you know, do those either individual interviews or run focus groups, they could start to do that in this online world? Have you got any examples of, of that sort of work? Yeah, we we do do we have moved in some of our projects to doing some of these things remotely, and it is challenging. So I think it does put you in a very different environment for gathering that kind of information because part of the benefit of doing interviews and part of the benefit of doing focus groups is that 
you can read the room, you can read mm -hmm. social signals. If yeah. you're asking a question that's a bit difficult, then the interviewee can give you non-verbal cues um, that maybe you need to move in a different direction. So COVID has definitely produced some kind of challenges in terms of collecting that kind of information. Um, but equally, there can be benefits as well. So I think one of the challenges with interviews um, is, or it can be, that people sometimes feel they feel a little bit worried or uncomfortable about talking about things that are um, difficult or there might be a kind of social desirability um, need. So they want to give you an answer that they, they feel that you want to hear um, and you don't want really to influence them in that way. So there are options for, for telephone interviews that we found that actually we think um, seem to kind of increase the feeling of not quite anonymity, but distance from the interviewer that allow people to provide a bit more depth and a bit more um, insight into how they're feeling and what they've done because they've got that distance. So it's a strange, it's a strange thing where some of those methods have worked in perhaps a bit better than we've expected, but, um, but it is difficult. And I think there are other methods that you can use as well, including um, moving to things like anonymous surveys that, if you're feeling like you've got a pretty specific idea of where you need to ask questions around a specific topic, you can try something like that instead as a quick way of gathering lots of um, in-depth information and perspectives from people without putting them in a situation where you're, you're trying to do something um, like an interview at distance. Okay, so, so we've talked about, just to recap there, you can observe the behaviour yourself as officers, councillors, you know, walk in the shoes of, of residents who are interacting with your services. Um, you can do interviews, we can do sort of online interviews, telephone interviews, and you were talking there about a, a form of anonymised survey as well. So so there are some options there for councils to, to take that next step. And again, you you would suggest working with partners as much as you can with this stuff? Yeah, absolutely, because especially um, we do a lot of work with vulnerable groups. So yeah. it's really useful to get the perspective on partners in terms of how to approach conversations with groups that have particular um, vulnerabilities. But I would say where possible, it is really useful. The one that, and this is obviously difficulty with COVID, but it is really, really valuable to do observations. Um, and we've done a lot of work where some of the things that you pick up in observations are so small and so subtle, but they have such a disproportionate impact on behavior um, mm. that it, it's really really interesting so um, for example one of the projects we did was looking at the um, integration of uh, a couple of teams that were co-located so it was health and social care workers in the community and in theory co-location means they should be interacting more um, but we spent you know the day with one of these teams and we saw that actually what they do is they go out and they spend most of their time in residents' homes. Um, and probably now they're spending most of their time separately um, finding other ways to contact residents, perhaps over the phone. So that means they're not actually interacting that much day to day. And they're only really coming together when they're doing things like handover meetings. So that's something that we could then confirm through interviews and in-depth interviews with the professionals. But it's also things like if you are able to be in the same space, um, we realised, for example, that when they're coming into the building, these two teams, one team would turn left at the entrance and the other team would turn right. 
So they're going to different ends of the office. So they're co-located in practice, but it didn't mean, again, that they were coming together. And, and everything in the building was segregated down to the milk that they had in their shared fridge. Um, so it's a, it is a really good way to pick up these kind of small, subtle things. Um, and if you have the benefit of having time to do interviews or, or calls, um, then you can probe some of these things in a bit more detail as well. Mm -hmm. no, that's, I think I'm really glad you made that point about um, engagement and vulnerable people and how we really need to, you know, take care and ensure that our interventions and how you know we're engaging with people is appropriate and that we've engaged with partners about that and that's a really important point to make so I, I thank you for raising that one so if we think back to our, our busy councillor our, our busy local government officer so what should they then consider when designing the actual intervention or the nudge going to carry out to to try and change this behavior so there are lots of different methods for going about your kind of final design for what it is that you want to use as a solution. But I think however you approach it, the most important thing is to make a link between the solution you're designing and what the actual behavioral barriers are, because that's ultimately what your solution is trying to address. And that's why the explore work is so important. So as an example, um, for a local authority who might be interested in preventative measures to ease the demand on social care services, um, they might be looking at, for example, the, the uptake of assistive technology. So that's things like support bars and ramps, um, lifts and alarms. So that if somebody has an accident, it's, it's preventing somebody from having an accident and then having to move into social care. Um, and we did a project like that with one council um, where we were looking at designing a solution to, to get people to apply for this assistive tech and have it installed. Um, and the barriers that surfaced in the explore phase were really interesting. So one of them was this kind of choice overload. So that's people switching off because they were given too many options that were very complicated and it was too hard to distinguish between the options for things they, they could ask for. Um, but really important was that we found that there was a kind of um, social stigma around having things like support bars um, and emergency alarms installed. So they're not subtle devices, they're not particularly aesthetically pleasing, but people were also worried that because they stood out, you know, they're, they're being seen as having a disability and that, that label, they felt there was a lot of stigma around that label as well. So linking the solution to the barriers, um, one of the things we decided to do to kind of tackle that stigma um, was to use um, social norms in a pamphlet to target people who we felt were um, in the, the at-risk group for things like falls. Um, and what social norms do is they just highlight that the use of the devices like that in that area, the local area, was really actually widespread. So rather than being kind of deviant for having them, <clears throat> you're actually part of a larger group of people locally who 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 shared shared the need for those things so you, you aren't you aren't standing out in that way um and we also let them know what the most popular options were and then also to kind of again get at that feeling of stigma we considered who the most effective messenger was so we included a quote from somebody like them which was a local resident uh talking about how his pendant alarm basically made him feel more secure um, and that that 
was designed, and both of those things were designed to tackle and speak to the barriers that we picked up in that explore phase. So that intervention did increase referrals um, to the assessments for assistive tech, and they did increase installations as well. So it's, I, I, I think the headline is it's just really important to ground um, the solutions in the barriers that you find. So just to unpack the, the social norms idea, because this is really powerful. Like the idea behind this is that as humans, we are we're social creatures. We don't really want to stand out from the herd. Is this goes back, you know, this is prehistoric stuff. You know, we want to fit in and we want to, you know, not really be the odd one out. So I think social norms, you know, it's a really powerful tool for councils to use, isn't it? To to appeal to that. Um, and also the other point around messenger, I think that's really important as well, is to really think about who is going to deliver that message, who you can use to be the messenger. And in this case, you're saying it wasn't, it might not have been who the council would have traditionally put as the messenger on their pamphlet. Is that fair to say? Yes, exactly. It's it's making, it's levering those social norms um, to their best effect. And one way of making a social norm really, really powerful is to make the person that you're using as a messenger or to make the norm that you're using for, as a comparison as similar to that target group as possible. Similar age range, similar kind of demographic characteristics and similar needs, which is what we did in this case. And you're right to say, it's not often um, that a council would put, maybe choose uh, somebody who is, is, is more like a resident than a figure of authority, but actually for this group, somebody like them with similar needs to them is a more powerful messenger than hearing it from um, somebody that they might recognise, say, in local government, and that is an important insight. Mm. And I guess as well with the assistive technology staff, you know, there may be a belief that this is for elder residents, older residents of the population. That's not always the case, is it? You will have people of working age, um, different ages, different demographics that that we will need to appeal to take up these these um, technologies to, to help them in their lives. So I think by picking somebody different to give that message, you can appeal to, to you know, the, the types of people who traditionally might have thought, oh, that's not for me. Yes, exactly. And part of the kind of mechanism of social norms is really to reveal what other people are doing. Um, so it might be that in this case, for example, that people feel like they're somehow deviant or they're um, they're standing out because they might have um, a, a mobility challenge or they might have a disability. But actually making sure that they understand that there, there are lots of people that use this kind of technology and they're part of a much bigger community. And those people are not just elderly people, they're people, you know, your age, they're people my age, um, and the, the needs are really varied, is a really important thing in terms of making people feel un, uh, much more comfortable and, and less like there is a stigma attached to it. Mm -hmm. So in that intervention design, we've talked about social norms, talked about messenger, are we co-designing that as well with with our target audience how can you give some examples of that please so i think the most effective intervention designs are they're, they're co-designed either with if where you can it's not always possible um with the group of people that you're hoping to support but they're also developed in partnership with people that perhaps normally from a kind of strategic perspective you wouldn't think to include 
So that is it often, I think, for local authorities, it's actually their frontline staff. So the next kind of best thing to actually getting um, input from your target group, which is often a bit of a challenge, is working with people that on the front line that come into contact with your target group. So this links to one really important um, factor with intervention development, which is about timing. So we talk a bit a lot about the best time to introduce an intervention. And if you're a local authority, um, the most timely point at which to introduce, introduce an intervention is often one that your frontline teams will recognise when you won't. So it's frontline teams that will know, um, and it's people that have actually done this credit, that will know, for example, that a social landlord will get a notification when one of their tenants applies for universal credit. And that gives you an insight into when it might be the best time to reach out and contact that person because they're moving into a different financial situation. Um, equally, if one of the things you are interested in is, as we've said, keeping people to um, supporting people to move into their own homes for longer, it might be really useful to consider that moment when residents submit um, an application to have their wheelie bin taken out for them because they can't do it for themselves anymore. And it's your frontline teams and your residents who will know that that is something that is one of the first things that they might do when they start coming into a situation where they're developing mobility issues. Um, so I'd really recommend bringing in the expertise of, yeah, whenever you can, your target group, and whenever you can, your frontline teams who are exposed to that side of the service, because they'll know where those little moments are where you can reach people at the right time and you can identify them. I think timeliness is such an important part of your intervention design, isn't it? It's understanding where in the customer journey is the right time. And I guess another example from our programme is, is the fizzy drinks trial we did with Liverpool City Council with the hospital cafes and actually, you know, the decision through engagement with frontline staff and service users as well was taken to put red stop signs actually on the shelves where the fizzy drinks were so as the customer was making that choice the point of the choice being made they could then decide oh that one is very sugary that one's not rather than maybe picking up a drink going to the till and then being told actually by the way you know that's a high sugary drink that would have been the wrong point in that customer journey wouldn't it? it needed to be at the point the decision is made visually by the customer so um i just think yeah that's a, a really important point to to draw out so um okay so we've got our interventions designed i'm gonna uh, this is the um definitely the 64 million dollar question now hazel is is the one that yeah what are the tips you have for measuring the impact of our trial so how will we know that it's worked yeah, so I think this is this is really important and this is important as well because it's something that needs to be considered almost as early as possible. Um, so before you reach the stage where you're even looking at designing a solution, um, you want to know that there's a way that you can tell whether or not what you've done has worked. Um, so one thing is, I think, very, very early on to think about, okay, how will we know if this has worked? And that is how will we measure the behavior that we're trying to change? Is it measurable? So if it's about, we've talked a bit about uh, increasing the uptake of assistive technology, you know, who actually records and holds that information? Is it recorded? 
Um, you know, can you access that for your area? Is it detailed enough to show you the numbers of applications or the numbers of installations? So is the behavior observable? Is it something that's already being recorded? Or is there something you need to put in place to, to, to monitor that behavior and record it so that you can tell if it's changed as a result of what you've done? That is something that's definitely, that's a first stage kind of conversation to have um, with whoever it is that owns, that you feel owns that data or might be able to kind of put some of those measurements in place. So to make that really clear, right at the beginning, when we're identifying what behaviour it is we want to change, that's when you need to think, can this behaviour be measured? How, who measures that? Where's the data? How can we access that? Like you need to really get that clear right at the first stage. Yeah, exactly. It's part of a, a, a kind of conversation about the feasibility of of, of what you're trying to do so one of the things you obviously want to do is you, you want to have an impact and you want to know that your solution is going to drive um, change in the right direction but you also you need what you're doing to be feasible in terms of understanding that impact so yeah it is a it's a it's a first stage thing um, it doesn't not being able to measure it at the front end doesn't necessarily mean there's not something you could put in place at some point in the process to make sure that data are collected um, but that's often more effortful. So it might be that that informs your decision about the kind of changes that you're trying to drive, because it might be there are other options for things that you could observe that it would be really easy to collect data and it'd be really easy to measure. So you kind of pivot your um, pivot your goal towards something like that instead, which can save a lot of time later down the line. Mm -hmm. Do you have an example of, of where you've set up that approach to measure the impact? Yeah, so one of the things we talked about is making sure that there are data available. And one of the challenges with that is that there's not always data available that perfectly matches behaviour that we're trying to change. So it's not always possible um, to have a direct assessment of that. So there are other options that you have in terms of understanding other data that are being collected that might be a really useful proxy. So in one case, um, we're working on at the moment, um, my team, quite a large scale project um, or currently being exploited. Um, so it's a very vulnerable group and it's very, very difficult to collect data on exploitation. So some of these, um, the context in which some of these things happens is very um, complicated. The data are very sensitive. Um, so it's very difficult to get an accurate read on whether or not anything that is happening locally is reducing the likelihood that those children are being exploited. Um, so one of the things that we're doing is um, looking at other outcome measures that we treat as proxies. Um, so one of them might be, for example, uh, it's really interesting that local authorities and some of the um, services that support these young people collect data on things like disclosures. Um, and disclosures are when a young person might uh, reveal to the person they're working with, so their trusted practitioner, that something has happened um, which links to exploitation or something has happened that is a kind of negative um, experience they've had with an adult in their area. So though that's not a perfect measure of exploitation, it's data that are being collected by partners as part of the service that they're delivering so they can improve their service, but actually is also really useful as an indicator for something like a, um, a trial or um, to allow us to measure impact 
for something that's a bit more complicated to get at otherwise. So yeah, I would say I would say where the data are not available, it's useful to look at other things that are being collected in that area that might serve as a as good enough proxy to give mm-hmm. you a sense of where the behavior is changing. Um, or um, I think we've mentioned previously things like surveys can be a kind of quick and dirty measure for getting at um, people's responses and self-report responses on whether or not they've they've uh, they've done what you've asked them to do or what you're interested in them doing. Um, but we'd always suggest looking at what data are available first um, and trying to navigate whether or not it's possible to use what you've already got, um, which is a lot less um, resource intensive than trying to collect something from scratch. Yeah, I think that's that's a really key point, isn't it? Where, you know, if you're collecting something that could be used as proxy measure anyway, or, you know, just see what the data is that's actually available rather than trying to start something from scratch. I think that's that's a key point to for, for the listeners to hear that. But um, so how important is it to test these interventions? Um, could we not just run a trial and sort of go from there and then roll it out more widely? You could do that. <laughs> you could. Playing um, devil's advocate there. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, it, it is important from the perspective that you want to know whether what you're doing has worked and you want more, hopefully, than, than an intuitive feel that what you've done has had a positive impact. So one of the things that's really important is, you know, when, when you're thinking about putting all of this time and effort into developing a behaviourally informed solution, um, you really, you really want to have a sense of how much of a difference that needs to make for it to be worth you rolling something out or, or even designing something in the first place. So one of the things you want to consider is, what is the size of the change that matters? Um, and it's useful to have a bit of information at that point about what's already happening. So if one of the things you want people in your area, so you want your residents, say, to recycle, if you think about what proportion of your residents already recycle, it might be that only 10% of them do. And you might be happy to increase that by a couple of percent, three or 4% maybe. Um, but if you're shooting for something that's a much bigger effect, if you want to say, uh, if you have a target, say for your residents to, uh, to see 40% of them recycling, that's a kind of quadruple, <laughs> quadruple what your baseline is in terms of uh, your impact. So you're really, you're shooting for something that actually might not be feasible with what you're designing. So what you want to make sure you're doing is getting the value out of that intervention, the value out of the resource you put into developing it. So you want to consider, you know, is your uh, is your intervention, does it have a good chance of getting at the impact that you think is important? Um, and also, you know, is it realistic to get a change that is meaningful for you. So if you think the intervention is good and it's going to give you a small change, is that enough to be meaningful and is that enough to be worth worth the time? So I think yes, that's one that's one reason to to consider testing because then you've got a you've got a real proof that you've got a change that you can achieve with your intervention that wouldn't have happened otherwise and you can really see the scale of that change. I think that's a really important point to bring out. So what we're finding with a lot of um, the behavioural insights trials that, that we run with councils at the LGA is that the um, outcome impact is is like a, a plus two percent take up of the service or a minus three percent. It's quite small, two to three percent 
changes but actually what we're finding is that because these are some of our greatest challenges in local government some of society's greatest challenges with most vulnerable groups if you as you've said earlier the really difficult things we're trying to do here ingrained behavior over many generations potentially that actually a, a, a nudge of two percent here or three percent is actually a great result for the council involved so whereas you, you would normally want to be getting like say 40 percent 50 why can't we get 40 percent 50 percent that is a huge thing so i guess that's part of the conversations we're having with councils is that that two three percent is a fantastic achievement um in this space but that you can actually evidence that that is a robust measure and that has happened that's the key isn't it yeah and and, and that gives you the ability to start looking at what else you can do to create a kind of additive effect so if you if you're sure if you can say that um, there's a causal link between the intervention that you've developed and the effect that you've seen, even if that effect is really small and um, scaled across a whole population in, a, in one local authority area, that can drive really significant cost savings. But also it gives you another point to start from. So you know that you've got one thing that works and anything else you do in the future to kind of iterate or add to that is hopefully building on that initial finding. So sometimes in behavioral science because we're talking about nudges you know we are talking about gentle interventions to to push behavior in one direction or another and there's no reason you can't use those things um, in concert so one intervention you develop that might include one nudge that is a social norm could also include something that is um, a reciprocal nudge so you do something for somebody and they want to do something in return for you and you can build on the effect of each of those things by including lots of different nudges in one intervention. So it's all part of a bigger process of kind of iteration and learning and small gains can, can, really, be, um, can really be built on to get you to larger effects over time. But it's about understanding what works and having that evidence for what works so that you can build off of those initial gains. And I guess the the importance of have of knowing that it's worked, even if it is that two percent one way or three percent the other, that then gives other councils the confidence to say, well, that's worked there in Liverpool, for example. We can pick that up and actually trial that in our own area, and that's what we're really keen to encourage at the LJ Hempstead podcast is to encourage other councils to to pick up those interventions that have worked elsewhere and and try them out. In their local space and their local um local challenges as well so that's another important reason for measuring yeah and i think i mean it's often the case that it's not possible say in in one local authority area to run a, a, a an experimental trial say a randomized control trial where you have two separate groups that you randomize people into and one gets the intervention and one doesn't that there are sometimes challenges and reasons why that's just not feasible in some um, local authority areas but even if you there are other options for the for ways at looking at your impact so you know you can run small scale pilots that don't give you the same standard of evidence but do allow you to look at whether or not it's there's indicative evidence for your intervention moving something in the right direction so if you're a local authority that is able to run a pilot you're paving the way for the next local authority who might have that kind of scale in terms of the number of people they can access to deliver perhaps something more experimental that's a bit more robust. Um, so you're standing on each other's shoulders, really. And anything that you can do to start looking at what the impact might be 
is useful in terms of just gradually building that evidence base for what works um, locally. Yeah, that that point about randomised control trials is super important, isn't it? With the units of government that we're talking about in local government, you've got some very small uh, councils, some bigger scale councils, and then obviously if you you've mentioned the the certain target groups might be quite small the, the the group that we actually want to engage with rather than the larger scale national central government behavior change trials for tax for example you've got millions of people in a control group so i'm really glad you you pulled that point out that even if you can't do the gold standard rct there are other things that councils can do um and and then to learn from each other and iterate that's that's a really important point to pull out Okay, Hazel, so as we're sort of coming towards the end of our conversation here today, what we like to, to leave our listeners with really are some top tips that they can take away um, to implement on their own behavioural insights projects. We want it to be nice and practical for them and pragmatic. So what are your top three tips that you'd like to leave the listeners with today? Okay, so the first one I'd say is make sure you're specific about the behaviour that you want to change. So think about specifically what it is that you actually need people to do that gets you to your outcome whether that be filling in a form whether that be turning up to something um whether that be um stopping doing something they're already doing really drill down to the to the specifics and then the second thing i'd say is make sure that you include where possible perspectives of a really broad um, range of people who understand the services or are in receipt of the services um, that are linked to your behaviour. So wherever your behaviour is happening, make sure that you include your frontline workers or practitioners, um, make sure that you include your delivery teams in the design of the solution, and where possible it's really useful to get the perspectives through explore work or anything you can do of the people that are actually going to receive the intervention and whose behaviour you need to change. And then the third thing I would say is just make the use of free resources. So there are um, there are lots of places where you can pick up um, new findings. So bit published findings on our website. Um, the What Works Centre for Local Economic Growth have things like evaluation toolkits, and they publish case studies and they have demonstrator projects, and they're really worth a read. So I think one of the beauties of behavioural sciences you know, whatever you learn, you can use a nudge in one context, which might be council tax, that might work in another context that might be recycling. So there's a huge amount to learn. And I think it's a really fascinating um, area where there's a lot of value in building this kind of capability into teams. So I hope that it's as enjoyable for everybody else as it is for us as well. Hazel, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today on this slightly drizzly day. Um, really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. So if you'd like, just to pick up really on Hazel's final point there, if you'd like to learn more about behavioural insights projects that you can try out in your council, then please do visit our website at www.local.gov.uk and search for behavioural insights because we have a host of other nudges for social good that you can learn from and also implement in your local area. Um, please do share the podcast with your colleagues and friends and many thanks for listening. <laughs>